Welcome to the City Reach Baptist podcast. If you would like more information about the life of our church, please go to our website at cityreach.com.au or like us on Facebook. We hope you enjoy this message. Why don't you open up your Bibles now to the Gospel of John, to John chapter 12. We're going to be looking from verse 35 and following. You know, uh, when you teach the Bible, uh, it's a weighty thing because uh, the Bible actually says not many people should be teachers because it's such a serious thing to interpret uh, God's word for God's people. And so um, I would appreciate it. Let's, let's pray, hey, as we come to this section. Father, we just pray that as we come to this section of Scripture, that you would just really help us to see the greatness and glory of King Jesus and that you would work through our hearts today, to turn our hearts towards him. So we'd love him, I pray. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, we're going to get straight into it this morning. So turn down in your Bibles to, look down in your Bibles, John chapter 12, verse 35. Our Lord begins in verse 35 by saying this, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest the darkness overtake you. And go now down to verse 36. While you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of light. Now, this is the final invitation that Jesus was giving to the nation of Israel. We've been studying John chapter 12 for some weeks now. And remember that the context of John chapter 12 is that it is the Passion Week, the final week before Jesus is crucified. On Monday, Jesus went in and he was hailed as the king. On Tuesday, he cleansed the temple. On Wednesday and Thursday, he gave some instruction. But before his mock trial on Friday, where he was uh, falsely accused and later crucified, somewhere in that period, Jesus offered this final invitation for Israel to come and believe in him and become sons of light. But when he says in verse 35, the light will be among you a little while, he literally means it. It would be just hours. Because in verse 36, we read, when Jesus had said these things, he departed and he hid himself from them. So this was literally the last invitation and the light was about to go out. The next time Jesus would show up in public would be at his crucifixion when he appeared before Herod and then before Pilate and before the Sanhedrin. And from now on, he would instruct his disciples in private as we're going to read in chapters 13 and following. And after the resurrection, he would only appear to believers. So this was really the day when the light went out for Israel. Now, when you think about it, Israel were the most privileged nation in human history. For more than three years, they had Jesus, the light of the world, presenting himself to them. Uh, They had the law of God, the prophecies of God, the, the scriptures, the prophets. They had all of redemptive history in their little slither of land. They had everything necessary. They even had the Messiah himself doing literal miracles in front of their eyes, but still they rejected him and did not receive his invitation to become sons of light. How sad. You know, as I think about this, I think about our nation of Australia. (laughs) We're a privileged people. 
so much common grace in this nation. If you've ever been to any of the other countries of the world, you realize we are so blessed. Man, it's a blessing to live in Australia. And the gospel and gospel witness, it's been in our country for so long. But by and large, even though people enjoy the common grace of God every day of their life, most of the people in our nation are rejecting God. And the light is going out. Now, for us here today, the rejection of Israel towards their Messiah is probably not a burning issue. I don't think many of you are thinking this is a real felt need that I have. And we're used to the fact that the church is mostly made up of Gentiles, non-Jewish people. But for the early church, this issue of the rejection of Israel to their Messiah was a big deal. For Paul, he felt unceasing anguish in his heart when he thought about his kinsmen, his fellow Jews, and how they had by and large rejected the Messiah Jesus and had not believed the gospel. And he devoted three whole chapters in the book of Romans, his great theological treatise to this topic. Well, in our passage today in John 12, John takes on this subject. But what I want us to do today is not only to see the theology behind the text, but also to see the absolute seriousness of this text. Because just as Israel at this moment had a final invitation to believe and become sons of light, there might be some people in this room. And today, today might be the final invitation that God is making for you to believe and become a son of light. Therefore, what we're going to look at from this text is three things. Firstly, the danger of unbelief. Secondly, the disease of the fear of man. And then finally, we're going to look at the dynamic of glory. So we're going to look at the danger of unbelief the disease of the fear of man, and then the dynamic of glory. So let's first look at the danger of unbelief. What is so dangerous about unbelief? Well, the danger of unbelief is this, is that if you stubbornly refuse to believe, there may come a moment when you cannot believe. If you continue to reject the light that God is giving you, there may come a time when God says, well, I'll give you what you want. And he'll confirm you in your unbelief. Look down in verse 37. This is a really sad verse to me. Though he had done so many signs before them. In John's gospel, we've read about seven of them. But at the end of John's gospel, John says, you could fill books up with all the signs that Jesus did. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in them. He had done so many miracles proving he was the disciples, was he was the Messiah, but still they stubbornly persisted in their unbelief. Now their unbelief did not take God by surprise. In fact, it was predicted. Look down in verse 38. John says, though he had done so many signs before them, yet they still did not believe in him. Verse 38, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now, this is a quote from the great um, Isaiah 53, a passage which graphically portrays the crucifixion of Jesus hundreds of years before it happened. You know, if you're a skeptic here this morning, I reckon just read Isaiah 53 
as I said, it graphically portrays Jesus's crucifixion. And it was written hundreds of years before Jesus was crucified. For example, in verse um, five of Isaiah 53, it says that he was pierced for our transgressions. A, a, a sword, like a, a spear went into his side. It says he was wounded for our transgressions. On the cross, he, he died in our place. And it says by his stripes, we are healed through his work. We are forgiven of our sin. But not only did Isaiah 53 pre predict the crucifixion of Jesus, it also predicted the rejection of Jesus. In verse three, it says that he would be despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we, he's talking about the nation, esteemed him not. We didn't give him the honor that he deserved. So John is saying that the unbelief of Israel and their rejection of Jesus as Messiah was not a surprise to God. It didn't take the eternal God by surprise that this happened. In fact, it, it fulfilled what Isaiah had written hundreds of years before. But even though the rejection of Israel was part of God's sovereign plan, they were still responsible for their actions. God's sovereignty and human responsibility are in no way opposites. God is sovereign and man is responsible. And notice that it says, verse 37, they would not believe. So verse 39, look down in your Bibles, therefore they could not believe. They would not believe, verse 37, verse 39, therefore they could not believe. Now what is going on here? Well, John quotes from Isaiah to help clear it up for us. He quotes this time from Isaiah chapter six and verses nine and 10, where it says that God has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Now this is um, what is called judicial blinding, the judicial blinding of God. Uh, judicial, it means judgment. God is pouring out judgment here in blinding eyes and hardening hearts. See, when you read the original context of Isaiah 6, the nation had turned from God so many times and worshipped idols. that God said, I'm going to give you what you want. If you have a blind eyes and hardened hearts, then I'm going to now blind your eyes. I'm going to now harden your hearts. He was going to confirm them in their blindness and their hardness of heart. And you see, for the nation of Israel at the time of Jesus, they had the light of the world for three and a half years, but they'd rejected him over and over. And as we said, there could be no more privileged a nation than the nation of Israel. But now the light had gone out. And since they would not believe, they could not believe. God had judged them by blinding their eyes and hardening their heart. So this is the danger of unbelief. The danger of unbelief is that if you stubbornly will not believe, you may reach the point where you cannot believe. Warren Wiersbe, he writes, when a person starts to resist the light, something begins to change within them and they may come to a place where they cannot believe. There is judicial blindness that God permits to come over the eyes of people who do not take the truth seriously. Now you might say, that sounds ridiculous. Surely God is a God who'll give you another chance. 
Well, the Bible does teach that God is gracious. He is slow to anger. He's abounding in love. The Bible says that God is patient with people, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to eternal life. And all the way throughout the Bible, God's patience with sinners is demonstrated. For example, in Genesis chapter 6, we read how God looked down at that time and He saw that the thoughts of people were only set on evil and it grieved God. And, and God said He would pronounce a judgment. He would literally cleanse the world with a flood. But God was patient. God set 120 years and He set Noah as a preacher and He provided a way of salvation for those people. Or when you go a little bit later on in Genesis, in Genesis 15, verse 16, God spoke to Abraham and he told Abraham that there was going to be a judgment on the Canaanites, a corrupt, ruthless people who offered their children in child sacrifice. But he told Abraham that the judgment would be delayed because as God said, the iniquity of these people is not yet complete. God was giving them time to repent. And God's enormous patience and grace towards Israel would be further demonstrated when on the day of Pentecost, the gospel was preached and 3,000 Jews responded. And it would be another 40 years before the destruction of the temple, giving people time to repent and receive the Messiah. And God is going to use the hardness of the nation of Israel. Uh, we, we learn in Romans that a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. And then God, one more time, will send Jesus and Jesus will publicly appear before the nation of Israel. And Paul says, the deliverer will come from Zion. And when he comes, he will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. But make no mistake, even though God is gracious, abounding in love and patient, there does come a point when God must bring judgment. God is patient but you shouldn't presume upon his patience. You should think that his patience is a desire for you to come to know him. As Isaiah says in Isaiah 55 verse six, seek the Lord while he may be found, call upon him while he may be near. You know, Israel couldn't have had the Lord nearer in the person of Jesus, but the danger of unbelief is that if you stubbornly refuse to believe, then you may reach a point where you cannot believe. So seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. You know, I'll never forget when I was only eight years old, there was this older gentleman who lived on a farm near us growing up. And my father would go and speak to him often about the gospel. And he would talk, challenge him about where he was going to go when he died. And this older gentleman would say to him, my dad, he'd say, Garnet, you know, when I die, when it comes to my time to go, I'll just go down the back of the farm, I'll sit under a tree, and I'll pass peacefully away. I was eight years old, and we were visiting neighbors of ours who lived directly opposite this older man. And I'll never forget it, we're having lunch, and there was all this commotion coming from this old man's home. Turns out he was in his garage honking his horn of his car because he was having a heart attack. He was dying. He came to the moment of his death and he was not prepared to reach to meet his maker. And even though my dad tried to resuscitate him, it was too late. Seek the Lord while he may be found. 
call on the Lord while he is near. Today might be the only day that some people have in this room to turn and believe. Don't presume that the patience of God, don't presume on the patience of God. God is being patient like he was in the days of Noah so that people would turn and come and repent and believe in his way of salvation. This is the danger of unbelief. The danger of unbelief is that if you persist in your unbelief, you may reach a point where you cannot believe. Well, let's now look at the, da- the, the disease of the fear of man. We've looked at the danger of unbelief. Let's look at the disease of the fear of man. Look down in verse 42. We read, Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. Now, the sticky issue with this verse is that are the authorities who John is describing as believing in him, are they true believers or not? Um, On the one hand, some who say they're true believers emphasize the fact that John says that they did believe. And the word believe in John is the most common word that he uses for those who express saving faith. But I would contend that this is not the case. I would contend that while these authorities had some belief in Jesus, John wants us to know that they didn't possess true saving belief in Jesus because they were not willing to nail their colours to the mask. You see, we've already seen in John's Gospel that John can describe people who have some sort of belief in Jesus as being believers. Uh, Over in chapter 8, after Uh, Jesus said that he was the light of the world. In verse 30, it says, as he was saying these things, many believed in him. Now, this sounds great, doesn't it? But then Jesus goes on to challenge this same group in verse 31. He says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. In other words, you're not true disciples yet. You need to know the truth and the truth will set you free. And Jesus got into a bit of a contention with this group of people and eventually he will call them children of the devil. Pretty strong language for apparent believers. You see, what is going on is that there are actually three aspects to saving faith. You see, in order to possess true saving faith, the first thing that you need is you need knowledge. You need to know who Jesus is and you need to know what he's done. But Knowledge by itself is not enough. You know, the Bible says that the demons believe that God exists and they shudder (laughs) and the demons are not saved. So knowledge is not enough. The second aspect of saving faith is assent. You need to take that knowledge and you need to assent that it is true, believe it to be true. Um, But even that's not enough. Um, People can have knowledge and can believe that their knowledge is not true and still not be saved because the third aspect of true saving faith is personal allegiance. It's going all in. It's putting your complete trust in Jesus. You see, I might ask you, do you believe that I could drive you in my car to the city? And you might say, yes, Timon, I believe that you could drive me in your car to the city Um, uh, because you know that I have a new Mazda 2 And you're like, yeah, your car now looks pretty good. It's not that one that was held together by duct tape anymore. 
Now, whether I have the capacity to drive you into the city, you know, it begs a question if you've ever seen my driving, but, but you might say, yes, yes, I, I believe that, you know, given your car and given your capacity to drive, that you could drive me in the city. But the real evidence that you believe that I could drive you into the city is not whether you say, I believe you can drive, I, you can drive me into the city, but it's whether you hop into the car and you give me your complete trust and you allow me to drive you to the city. And you see, these authorities, they had heard the message of Jesus, they'd seen his miracles. Like Nicodemus, they probably thought, no one can do the works you're doing unless you've come from God. But the problem was, is that they wouldn't personally commit to Jesus as Messiah, because as it says in verse 43, they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. You see, this is the disease of the fear of man. The problem with the fear of man is it can keep you from going all in on Jesus, from giving your complete allegiance and complete faith and complete trust in Jesus. Now you might say, is public allegiance to Jesus important? Well, don't take my word for it. Take Jesus's word. Mark 8, 38, Jesus says, whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father and the holy angels. Or consider what Paul says in Romans chapter 10, verse 9. He says, if you confess with your mouth that what? Jesus is Lord. So that's public. You confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with your heart, verse 10, you believe and are justified and with your mouth you confess and you are saved. So public allegiance is important because it shows the condition of your heart. It shows whether you've gone all in with Jesus. Have you given Jesus your complete trust? You know, David Platt writes this in his book, Follow Me. He says, imagine a woman named Ion. Ion is part of a people who pride themselves on being 100% Muslim. To belong to Ion's tribe is to be a Muslim. Ion's personal identity, her familiar honor, her relational standing, and her social status are all intertwined with Islam. Simply put, if Ion ever leaves her faith, she will immediately lose her life. If Ayan's family ever finds out that she is no longer a Muslim, they will slit her throat without hesitation. Now he says, imagine having a conversation with Ayan about Jesus. You start telling her about how God loves her so much that he sent his only son to die on the cross for her sins as her savior. And as you speak, you can sense her heart starting to soften towards what you're saying. At the same time though, you can feel her spirit trembling as she contemplates what it would cost her to follow Christ. With fear in her eyes and faith in her heart, she says, how do I become a Christian? And Platt writes, you have two options in your response to iron. You can tell her, that's really easy. You just assent to certain sort of truths. Or Platt writes, you can tell her the truth. You can tell iron that in the gospel, God is calling her to die to die to her life, to die to her family, to die to her friends, to die to her future, and in dying to live, to live in Jesus, to live as part of his global family that includes every tribe, to live with friends who will span every age, to live in a, a future where joy will last forever. 
And Platt writes, iron is not imaginary. She was a real woman who made a real choice to become a Christian, to die to herself and live to Christ no matter what it cost her. And because of her decision, she was forced to flee her family and be isolated from her friends. Yet she is working strategically and sacrificially for the spread of the gospel among her people. The risk is high every day as she dies to herself all over again to live for Christ. You see, the disease of the fear of men prevented these authorities from turning to Christ in true saving faith and giving their full allegiance to Jesus because they loved the glory that comes from man rather than the glory that comes from God. Now the cost to come to Christ might not be the same for every single one of us like it is for iron, but the call is the same. It's a call to put your complete trust in Jesus, to go all in, to publicly confess him and take his name. I am a Christian. I'm one of Christ's. You see, there are no secret disciples. Even Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, who were probably part of this group, they ended up nailing their colors to the mast at Jesus' death because they took his body off the cross and publicly everyone saw it. So don't let fear of what other people might think prevent you from coming to Jesus. Don't let what your parents think or what your friends might think or what even the other people in this church might think of you. If today you come to Christ, don't care about what other people think. Come and publicly align with Jesus and go all in and give him your complete trust. So we have looked at the danger of unbelief if you will not believe, you may get to the point where you cannot believe. And secondly, we've looked at the disease of the fear of man. The fear of man may prevent you from publicly confessing your allegiance to Christ. But now I want to look lastly as the, at the dynamic of glory. You see, there is one verse that I missed out in our exposition of this passage that is a mind-blowing verse. In contrast to those who in verse 37 saw the signs but still do not believe, and in contrast to those who in verse 42 did believe but would not publicly confess their allegiance to Jesus, look down in verse 41. We read this. Isaiah saw these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. You see, what the people of Israel failed to see Isaiah saw. Remember John said at the beginning of his gospel, the word became flesh and it tabernacled among us. He uses that word. That's what the word dwelt means. It means tabernacled. The tabernacle was the place where the glory of God came down among the people of Israel. And, and John says that was Jesus. Jesus came down in his glory tabernacled among us. But they failed to see the eternal God. But what they failed to see, Isaiah saw. And that is why he was transformed. That is why he ministered. That is why he publicly confessed his allegiance to Jesus in spite of the difficult time in which Isaiah lived. Now, what did Isaiah see? Well, I believe that when John says that Isaiah saw the glory of the Lord, he saw two things. Through prophetic revelation, he saw the suffering of Jesus, the one who was wounded for our transgressions, 
who was pierced for our transgressions, who was wounded for our iniquities. But also, this is awesome. I think it also refers to the fact that in Isaiah chapter 6, in verse 1, it reads this. In the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah says, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and the train of his temple filled, the train of his robe filled the temple with glory. I think Isaiah saw Jesus seated on the throne. It was Jesus seated on the throne. It was Jesus high and lifted up. It was Jesus whom those angels surrounded saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And what happened when Isaiah saw this vision of glory? Isaiah fell on his face and said, I am unclean and I dwell among a people who are unclean. This is the dynamic of glory. The dynamic of glory. You see, the problem for every person, according to 2 Corinthians 4 verse 4, is that the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. See, the problem with unbelief is not just, it's not just an intellectual problem. Some people think, well, if I was to see a miracle, then I would believe. You know what I say to people like that? God has given you a, a fantastic miracle. You know what it is? And it's, it's free for everyone to access. It's creation. The creation of the world is a, an amazing miracle. God created this everything out of nothing. That's a pretty amazing miracle, right? And yet people explain that away with all sorts of ridiculous theories, like the theory of evolution, that all of this came about by chance and random selection. That's ridiculous. You see, no, no, no. The problem is not a problem of intellect. The problem is a problem of heart. When we see the glory of God, it actually opens blind eyes and it transforms hearts. And you see, here's the good news, everybody. Just as God can harden hearts and close eyes, he can also open eyes and he can soften hearts. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says. He says, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but we proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let the light shine out of the darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. What we need to be praying for Australia is that people would have an encounter with the glory of God. What we need to be praying as a church is that we would have an encounter with the glory of God. Because let me tell you, the way that you become a Christian is you encounter the glory of God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. I find it interesting that the angels don't surround the throne and say, loving, loving, loving. Certainly God is love, but He is holy. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. What people need an encounter with is the glory of God, the weightiness of God, that He is high and lifted up. And what you need as a believer this morning, the way you grow as a believer, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, he says, you grow not by just getting three simple points and trying to apply them to your life, but you grow 
by actually encountering the glory of God, the weightiness of God. If you struggle with the fear of man, like I struggle with the fear of man, what you need is you need an encounter with God's glory. You, don't need, you need to see that the weightiness of God is more significant than the opinion of man. If God accepts you and if he loves you, then that's more significant than what any man might say about you. So we all have friends here and family here, right, who don't know Jesus. We should be on our knees. We should be praying for them to encounter the weightiness of God, for God to open their eyes to see the weightiness of who Jesus is so that they will have their Isaiah moment and will fall down and say, I am undone. I am unclean, Lord. Do you need an Isaiah moment this morning? Maybe you are a Christian, but your heart is hard. Do you need an Isaiah moment today where you see again that Jesus was the one who was wounded for our transgressions? He was crushed for our iniquities, but not only that, that he is high and lifted up and seated on a throne. I pray that the Holy Spirit would bring the weightiness of who Jesus is into your conscience right now. So, this was Israel's final invitation, but many of them missed it. They would not believe, therefore they could not believe. Those who did believe would not confess publicly for fear of the Pharisees, and the light went out. As I said, today might be the day when some of you need to turn to the Lord. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. So I'm going to ask you to do a bold thing here today. I'm going to pray and I invite you to pray along with me. And then in the last song, if you want to receive Jesus and go all in with Jesus this morning, I want you to come and kneel at the front of the church. This will be a demonstration that you don't care who knows or your public allegiance to Jesus. You're going all in for Jesus. He is your Lord. He is your Savior. You're receiving his gift of salvation. You're saying, Jesus, I put my complete trust in you, in you to save me from my sin. I realize that I am undone before a holy God and I need your forgiveness. I need your grace in my life. So let me pray. Let's close our eyes and bow our heads.